0: So good to see each of you here this morning in the house of the Lord. We are continuing in our messages in our season of Advent, and today we're talking about love. Uh, Before I start reading uh, the passage, uh, we're going to be looking at a very well-known Christmas text. Uh, You might have heard it referred to as the Magnificat. Uh, That's from the translation in Latin. The first word of this song of Mary is magnificat, uh, exalt, or lift up on high. Um, And uh, it's her song of praise to God. But before we uh, start reading this, and I think it's a celebration of the love of God, the many ways in which Mary has experienced the love of God in her own life. Before we jump into that song, let me back us up just a little bit and find out what's happened immediately before this. Uh, Mary has been approached. Well, Luke actually first tells us about uh, an angel of God, Gabriel, approaching a uh, relative of Mary's named Elizabeth. She was a woman who had reached an advanced age and had never been able to conceive a child and the angel appears to her and lets her know that she is going to bear a son miraculously she will be allowed to conceive a child and that this child will be the one to prepare the way for God's Messiah John the Baptist and miraculously this woman becomes pregnant Um, and then Gabriel goes to this young woman Mary And we don't know how old she was, but given the custom at the time, uh, as soon as you were old enough to conceive children, you were considered more or less ready for marriage. So if she had already been promised in marriage to Joseph, she could have been as young as maybe 14 or 15. Uh, We don't know for sure, but likely she was uh, very young. And uh, the angel approaches her, Gabriel, and tells her that God is going to do something miraculous in her life. She is going to conceive and bear a child. And she says, how's that going to happen? I've I've never had relations with any man. And the angel says, don't worry about that. It's going to be a miracle of God. Uh, It's going to happen without uh, any man being involved. And uh, you're going to have this miraculous pregnancy. And uh, I'm sure she knew all that that would entail, that all of a sudden showing up and being pregnant and trying to tell people, I didn't do anything I wasn't supposed to. It's a miracle of God. Uh, likely not many people would believe her. Um, I, would, I would suggest if, if your child tried that with you, you might not believe her either. Uh, so she, she was facing an uphill battle, but she surrenders to God's plan. God, do with me whatever you will. And um, it's at that point that the angel tells her, well, guess what? God's not only doing something great with you. He's doing something great with your relative, Elizabeth. In fact, she is now in her sixth month of pregnancy. This woman whom everybody said was unable to have children because God is doing wonderful things. So uh, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. No doubt, I think, uh, looking for somebody that God has been doing something special in her life. And hopefully, maybe this relative of hers will understand what God is doing with her and will be uh, receptive and supportive of her. I'm sure she was very frightened at this moment in her life. So uh, when she goes to visit Elizabeth, the moment she walks in the door, God miraculously does something. Her six-month child in her womb uh, reacts to the just begun life of Jesus in the womb of Mary and leaps for joy, and the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, and she praises and blesses Mary and recognize how blessed she is by God to be made a participant in this the most significant thing God is doing in all of human history and not only is she blessed but the fruit of her womb is blessed and uh, she just marvels that she is counted worthy of receiving the mother of her Lord and I guess Mary at that moment recognized this was going to be a good visit Uh, God had laid on Elizabeth's heart miraculously before Mary even has to explain anything what's going on here. And she is with somebody who knows something about what God is up to and the the, the amazing things God is doing. And that is when she sings this song or or speaks this poem uh, that we know as the Magnificat. So that's where we're picking it up in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I've said, I think this is a celebration of God's love and the many aspects of of God's love that Mary has uh, become personally acquainted with. In the, the recent events of her life, the first thing, as she exalts God and, and lifts him high and praises him, and she says why it is that she's doing this, she's rejoicing, she's full of joy in God because God is her Savior. And I I wonder uh, at this moment if she felt this fear and this trepidation at facing whatever everybody else was going to say. And we know from the Bible that the minute Joseph finds out about her pregnancy, he wants to divorce her quietly and have nothing to do with her. she knew and, and likely she understood that this would mean decades of people whispering behind her back and uh, uh, s- making snide comments about her indiscretion. And we know this to be the fact because even in Jesus' public ministry, when he was a full adult and was out there preaching, the Pharisees were constantly throwing barbs at him about things like, we know who our father is. What do you think they meant by that? Uh, and And Mary knows all of this that she 's facing, and if she is fourteen fifteen, can you imagine the weight of that? But now she 's arrived here at elizabeth 's home, and God has done this miraculous giving of Information to Elizabeth so that she fully understands without her even having to explain anything and she feels like the weight has been lifted and God has rescued her from this terrible moment of perhaps fear or despair. God is very real and has very uh, significantly intervened in her life right now to rescue her and to save her and she feels confident now about what's coming ahead. And what, she, what awaits her in the coming days and weeks and months and years? God is Savior. The first thing we can say about God's love is that it is demonstrated in the fact that He saves. And not only uh, does He do so in, in small moments of life like this where we're facing uh, a... a A moment of crisis or a moment of difficulty as Mary is facing right now, but more broadly than that, Jesus has come to rescue us not just from difficult moments of life, but in an eternal sense to rescue us from sin and all of its eternal ramifications. The devastation of sin that has severed us from communion with the God who created us and gave us life and purpose. And Christ is coming to restore us back to that communion with the God who gave us the breath of life and who put us on this earth with purpose to be participants with him in what he is up to. God wants to save and note how great the love of God is, how unselfish the love of God is, that he is not simply Savior in the sense that he saves us directly so that we are the, uh, he is the only uh, recipient of our gratitude for saving us. Notice Mary's example here. How has she just now experienced the work of Savior God? It's through Elizabeth. God miraculously illuminated Elizabeth about the reality of her situation, and through Elizabeth, she received words of comfort and encouragement at a difficult moment in her life because God involves people in His saving work. He's expansive and inclusive in this work of salvation. What else? does Mary have to say about this loving God? For he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The next thing she has to say about God is that he does great things. God's love is demonstrated in the great Things he does not only does he pay attention to somebody who's nobody and Mary recognizes her own humble estate and she recognizes that she has nothing to commend her to God for the kind of privilege he has just bestowed upon her she's just a kid has no money no connections, has contributed nothing of significance to the world. She's not some grand scholar, somebody who's invented the cure to cancer. She's done nothing to merit this kind of favor from God. And yet, God does great things in people who are not great. God does great things and involves even the lowest and the humblest of us. In these great things he's doing. She says from now on all generations will call me blessed. And boy was she right. Mary is revered the world over. By millions of people, in fact, to the point that some people get carried away with it and revere her as almost more than human, almost divine herself. Some people have gone overboard, but certainly because of what God has done and how he has involved Mary in what he is doing, she is certainly recognized by, as blessed by millions of people the world over to this day. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, Mary could have focused on the inconveniences. She could have focused on the fact that before her marriage has even started, already her husband is going to want to divorce her. She could focus on the fact that nobody is going to believe that I was not unfaithful. She could say, God, you have ruined my life. You have wrecked it. But that's not how she looks at things. She understands God is doing something incredible, amazing. And she considers herself privileged to have been invited by God to participate with Him in what He's doing. Sometimes we balk at the Christian message. We're content for God to solve our problems, for God to save us from sin, for him to come calling when we need something. But when we start talking about mission, we get uncomfortable. What do you mean that God has a mission in this world and that the purpose of my life here is to participate in the fulfillment of that mission? Why does God issue a great commission? Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all the things that I have taught you. We know our marching orders, we who follow Christ. Sometimes you may balk at that and say, wow, what an imposition. I wanted to do something else with my life. I wanted to pursue something different. Why don't I just get to do whatever I want to do? Why do I have to join what God is calling me to join in? And we think of it as some great imposition from God. You've got it completely wrong. You didn't deserve for God to offer you participation with him in the great things he is doing. We're talking about God Almighty. The God who exists beyond the universe. The universe could snuff out of existence tomorrow and God would be just fine. He doesn't need any of this to exist. Everything that exists is here because he spoke it into being. Every beating heart that beats, beats because he breathed the breath of life into it. Everything that exists comes from Him and was made by Him, for Him. That this God would say, I'm not just going to do what I want to do all on my own. I don't need you anyway. I would do it better. You guys uh, are not reliable anyway. I'll just do it myself. God could have done that. But His love is so great that not only does He do great things, but He invites us us, messed up, unreliable people like us to join him, to participate with him in the great things he is doing. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy is the other side of the coin of grace, right? Grace is when God gives you something good you don't deserve. Mercy is when God does not give you something bad you do deserve. You have done something wrong, and you should be punished for it. You should suffer the full consequences of the wrong thing you did. And yet God extends mercy. We do not experience the full extent of the consequences of the bad things we've done. I'm not saying God obliterates it, but we, we don't drink the full measure of, of the bad things that we deserve because of God's mercy. Now, Mary says something very interesting about this mercy of God. It's, it keeps going on, generation After generation, not only will it span her entire lifetime, but it will continue on into the lives of the generations to come. And perhaps as she's saying this, she's thinking back and thinking of what God has done in Elizabeth's life and how merciful and gracious God has been with Elizabeth, granting her this miraculous pregnancy and this child who will one day be John the Baptist and will prepare Israel for the Messiah. Maybe she's thinking back to Sarah, Abraham's wife, who also was unable to conceive. And how after menopause, at age 90, God miraculously granted her the ability to have a child and she bore Isaac. Maybe she's thinking about Isaac's wife, Rebecca, who also was unable to conceive until God intervened. And miraculously, she gave birth to the twins, Jacob and Esau. Maybe she's thinking in the period of the judges when Manoah and his wife were unable to have a child and God miraculously allowed his wife to conceive Samson. And maybe also at the close of the period of the judges when uh, Hannah goes to the tabernacle and is pouring her heart out before God and pleading with him to grant her the, the privilege of bearing a child and commits herself, if you give me this child, I will give him right back to you. And God allowed her to bear Samuel. This is a pattern of God's heart. His mercy, His grace is something continual that goes from generation to generation and it traces back to the Garden of Eden. And it will continue until the close of this age. Now notice... Mary doesn't say that everybody receives the full measure of this. It's for those who fear him. You see, if we turn to God and choose to respond to God with reverence, and we revere him in our hearts, and we have the biblical fear, not terror, but this profound respect for him as God, as God alone deserves from us, the kind of respect that is higher than any respect we give anybody else in creation. Because we owe our life to him, and our purpose is tied up in him. He created us for his purposes. Those of us who recognize that and turn to him in that kind of reverent fear, we become recipients of this eternal mercy. God is forever merciful. That's another expression of his love, that he extends this unending mercy to us. 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Another expression of God's love and another reason Jesus came into this world is that God is in the process of fixing what's wrong. And God is mighty. The common idiom or the common image used in the Hebrew Bible to describe strength is uh, a bared arm. The strength of your arm. And uh, often the prophets talk about God's strong arm at work. He has shown the strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Mary knows that she's nobody. God is doing the most important thing he will do in the entirety of the history of this world. Where are the high and mighty in this pattern of what he's doing right now? Where's King Herod? Where's the Sanhedrin? Where is the Emperor in Rome? Are they participants in all of this? No, it's this young girl. Nobody knows. From the middle of nowhere. And before long, uh, when the baby's born, you know who God's going to call to announce the great news to? He's going to approach some shepherds out watching sheep at night. Meanwhile, all the biblical scholars and scribes all of the religious leaders, all of the powerful and elite people in the world are going to be absolutely clueless that God is doing this. Mary is very aware that God has rejected what this world has set up as powerful and respect-worthy. And He has instead chosen to exalt what this world dismisses as insignificant you see the world is completely upside down our sin has turned it all backwards and because of sin the way we conduct ourselves individually is not the way we were designed to conduct ourselves and we do not live for each other and for the world and for God we live for ourselves and because every one of us is doing that the world is completely upside down from what it should be and our governments are just collective expressions of that way of thinking And the whole world is upside down. Christ came to fix that, to restore. And there's a beautiful chiasm here. I've talked about this way the Hebrews had of arranging things. They would have a thought and then a second thought. And if we kind of outline it, And then they would have another thought that reflects this one. And then another one would go back and reflect the one above it. Notice how this is a little bitty chiasm here. On the outside, think of it as a sandwich. On the outside of this is things in this world that are considered great. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Let's skip to the bottom part of it. The rich he has sent away empty. Those are the the powerful, the the parts that this world considers important. And what often Hebrews would do when they build a chiastic structure is the heart of the chiasm would be the most important point in the whole text. So what's the heart of this little chiasm? God has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. This world doesn't have a whole lot of estimation or concern for those of humble estate, for those who are going hungry. Instead, in our world, it's the mighty who sit on thrones that call the shots. It's the rich who have everything they need and so much more than they could possibly need. Mary says, God is demonstrating his love and that he is sending this child into the world to fix what we have turned upside down, to raise up what shouldn't be low and to bring down what shouldn't be high. God corrects wrongs. Now, the way Jesus does this is not the way we humans do it. When we correct wrongs, we raise armies, we go to war, we kill people. We use violence to put an end to oppression. Jesus never did that. He told his disciples to put away their swords. He warned them, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. How has Jesus changed the world? Well, we're 2000s in, 2,000 years into him doing his work. And the way he does it is he changes hearts and robs sin of its power and dominion in the hearts of those who turn to him in faith so that the fighting and the hatred and the war begins to bleed out of us and leaves us and for 2,000 years Jesus has been changing hearts this way not through force not through laws or the imposition of faith but by changing hearts And I will say the world still has wicked people and the world, uh, we are all wicked people, but the world still has plenty of wrongs and plenty of abuses of power and plenty of things that are not the way they should be. But the world today is unlike the world was 2,000 years ago. Jesus has been changing the world for 2,000 years. You know what ADA compliance is about? It's an act, right? The Americans with Disabilities Act, which by law requires that any business or any uh, thing that opens its doors to the public has to make accommodations for people with physical uh, uh, hindrances, uh, people that have physical uh, hindrances of some sort. Do you think there were ADA laws 2,000 years ago? You think 2,000 years ago the Romans cared about the cripples? No. The Jews had some inkling of it. They, they believed in almsgiving and taking care of the weak and the poor, but the Romans, the Greeks? You think Genghis Khan cared about that kind of stuff? But we live in a world today where that's an assumed reality. We take care of the weak. Jesus has been changing this world for 2,000 years and the world today is unlike it was 2,000 years ago and he is correcting what is wrong and we have uh, begun to see the fruit of it. But you know where God's love and his love demonstrated in correcting wrongs becomes most powerfully evident? It's when we as individuals come to him in faith and surrender our lives to his corrective work. When we let Jesus fix what's upside down in our hearts, we, di- we discover just how good and loving God really is. Verse 54, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. <clears throat> One final thing, Mary has to say about God's love is that it's demonstrated because he keeps his promises. God called Abraham, she talks about Abraham, and he said, Abraham, come follow me and I am going to give you a a very large descendants and I'm going to use your descendant to bless all the families of the earth. He repeated the same thing to Israel, his grandson. I will bless your 12 sons and their descendants, and I will use them to be a blessing to the whole earth. He told King David, I will put one of your descendants on your throne, and he will reign eternally, and he will bring peace to the world. Now, for several centuries, Israel had not even had a king of their own. There was no Davidic king on the throne. Hadn't been for centuries. Ever since they fell to Babylon, they had struggled and struggled to try to regain independence. It had been uh, hundreds of years. And still, right now, they were under the boot of the Roman Empire and they were just a little outlying little country on the far fringe of the Roman Empire and they seemed like an insignificant region, not even a country, a region within the vast Roman Empire and the person sitting on the throne was not even an Israelite, he was an Idumean by the name of Herod the Great, a descendant of Edom. I'm sure many people were wondering if God had decided he was going to renege on his promises. There's no descendant of David on the throne, and we're not a blessing to all the families on the earth. We are a laughingstock to the world. Mary knows God is doing everything he promised to do. This child is going to fulfill the promises centuries past. Now once Jesus uh, comes and it turns out it isn't just somebody like David, it's somebody much more than David. He's not just a branch from the root of David, he is actually the root of David himself. In other words, David uh, only exists because of Jesus. Even though he is a descendant of David, he is both branch and root to the stump of Jesse. And Jesus will establish the eternal kingdom of God upon his resurrection. He will be granted all authority in heaven and on earth. And so it is that this descendant of David has been reigning eternally because he is eternal God. There has never been a moment in the history of the cosmos in which this descendant of David has not sat upon the throne of the universe. But for centuries, nobody could see that. They didn't know. Until this moment where Jesus is born and God unveils the reality of what's going on. Nobody understood. You see, sometimes we look at God's promises and we face circumstances where we cannot conceive of a way in which God could be keeping his promises. It seems like he has failed. Mary reminds us that God, who loves us, keeps his promises. Even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand it, God keeps his promises. And the calling of Israel, the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the descendant of Abraham who brings God's blessing to every family on earth. God keeps his promises. Verse 56, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. In verse 36 of chapter 1, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that uh, Elizabeth is in her sixth month of pregnancy. So if Mary then goes to visit her and remains with her three more months before returning home, likely she was there until the baby was born, which is interesting uh, Mary had never had children. This is also part of God preparing her for what lies ahead. It gives her an idea of what to expect with childbirth and how to deal with a newborn baby. All the things she's going to need before long. And at three months, which is probably about when she's beginning to show signs of her pregnancy, after these crucial three months with Elizabeth that God has granted her, she returns home. Uh, And in the meantime, God is working on Joseph and he will receive her and they will be wed and eventually they'll end up in Bethlehem for the census and there Christ will be born. God loves us. There's no other way to explain it. Why else be our Savior? Why else pursue us? Why not destroy us for our sin? Rid the world of of our stain. God extends redemption to us. The restoration of everything that is broken in our lives and in creation itself. He takes us, small, fragile creatures of clay, and does wondrous things in our lives. He extends to us his unending mercies. He breaks in and writes what is wrong, bringing low the proud and raising up the humble. And he keeps his promises. He never forgets. He remembers even if we forget. This is the God who came to us in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Have you discovered the God of love that Mary sang about? We're going to sing a song right now, and this is our time to respond to God's word. Let me tell you, first of all, if you have never opened your heart up to Jesus, I want to invite you to do that today. Open up and say, Jesus, come in and do your loving, wondrous work in my life. I want to surrender to it. If that's you today, we're, we're going to stand in a moment. There'll be people here at the front. Come to the front. Take the hand of somebody here and tell them, I want to open my heart up to Jesus and let them help you uh, pray and, and open your heart up to Jesus. Maybe you already know Jesus and there's been a reminder today of what God is inviting you to participate with him about. And you want to commit yourself anew to whatever it is God is inviting you into. Whatever God lays on your heart, Uh, come during this time. Let me ask you all to stand, and if the people who are going to help us with the invitation would come to the front right now. Please come while we sing.